Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This fall, Ohio voters will decide on Ohio Issue 1, a ballot initiative that would reduce drug possession offenses to misdemeanors, so they're no longer classified as felonies with harsher penalties. Proponents say it would keep over 10,000 people out of Ohio prisons per year, while opponents say the number is closer to half of that. Issue 1 is a proposed constitutional amendment that is being bankrolled by billionaires, including Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chen. My guest today, I'm really excited to welcome with us Bashara Addison, who is the Senior Manager of Policy and Strategic Initiatives from Towards Employment. So, Bashara, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Okay. And Judge Mattia. Judge Dave Mattia is the Common Pleas Judge from Cleveland, and he helped to really forge Cuyahoga County's first drug court program in 2008. So, Judge, welcome. Glad to be here too, Greg. Okay. So, let's begin. I'd like to give each of you just a, a minute here to give us some opening remarks to our audience. Bashara, you are a, a big proponent for Issue 1, so we'll let you lead off. All right. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, So issue one, um, we'll do four things. Um, The first is it will increase earned time credit for those who are participating in evidence-based programming. Um, It will reduce um, uh, drug possession offenses uh, from felony four and five to misdemeanors. The third thing it will do is it will um, remove the ability of a judge to use prison as a tool for non-criminal probation violation sanctions And then the last thing it will do is it will redirect cost savings from the reduction in prison population, which we expect prison population to drop about 20 percent, back to our communities for drug treatment, uh, victims awareness and uh, programming for uh, survivors of crime. Um, And then 15 percent is flexible based on how the what the General Assembly decides. And we should share that a big part of your role and what you do now is helping those to reenter society. Isn't that right? That's true. So at our organization, we made a decision that we would um, dedicate some resources in supporting Issue 1 because one element of Issue 1 will directly impact about 100 of our graduates from 2017, uh, specifically the retroactive nature of the reclassification of felony four and five drug possession offenses as misdemeanors. And so um, if that if Issue 1 were to pass, we have about 100 individuals where drug possession is their most serious offense, and then they would become eligible for sealing if they could have those felonies reclassified. It can get easier to make it back into the workforce. Right. Policy Matters Ohio actually reduced a paper recently looking at the economic impact of collateral sanctions and how issue one will actually reduce barriers to employment for people with criminal records. So now I'd like to pivot over to you, Judge Mattia. You've had a uh, very, very successful drug court program that you've fostered over the course of the last 10 years. Give us your opening remarks and your comments on issue one. Well, like most judges in Ohio, I believe in rehabilitation over incarceration. I've been a drug court judge for 10 years. 1,100 people have been through the 
drug courts in Cuyahoga County that Judge Sinnerberg and I operate. Um, but I just have a hard time believing the, the lies that uh, the issue on proponents are putting out there. Every time I debate this issue, the claims get bigger. Um, Ms. Bashara, you cited that the prison population under this would be reduced by 20%. The prison population is at 50,000. You know, 20% of that is 12,500. Your own policy managers group only said the prison population would be reduced by 10,000 in their paper. So you've overinflated that today. Um, since policy matters statement came out, the Office of Budget Management in Ohio came out and said the prison population reduction would be much less, um, more like 4,000. So let's be truthful with the voters. Here's what issue one will do. Issue one will destroy our successful common pleas drug court infrastructure where lives are saved on a daily basis. Issue one will let violent offenders and many sex offenders out of prison early. We talk about a reduction for earned time credit on evidence-based practices, but what you don't tell the voters is those folks on your side who wrote this, wrote this to let people get out of prison up to 25% earlier on their sentence merely for working in the prison kitchen. Uh, there are a shortage of programs in the prison system for rehabilitation, and uh, the people who are the, coming out early are going to be coming out uh, just as dangerous as they did when they went in. The false narrative that you folks are running the public on, that the prisons are full of nonviolent offenders, is not true. Less than 11% of the prison population is made up of fourth and fifth degree felons, the lowest number um, on our felony scale. Those people are there um, because they're either repeat offenders or uh, have committed crimes of violence. Uh, the public needs to understand that we cannot send people to prison uh, who are nonviolent fourth and fifth degree felons as sentencing as a result of action taken recently by the legislature. Um, what's very frightening, though, about uh, issue one is it takes away the tools of accountability that judges like myself use uh, every day in our jobs. Uh, you say with pride that you're going to take away the ability to uh, send an offender to prison uh, for violating probation. Uh, I, I don't know what you expect judges to do in reality uh, to coerce a difficult population into um, paying their restitution, showing up for drug treatment, uh, doing community work service, uh, getting their GED. The common things that judges do when they put someone on probation to redirect them towards a law-abiding lifestyle. If you take away the threat of incarceration, you take away any ability we have to change behavior. Um, there will be no savings from this issue. The cost of issue one going to uh, rehab will be borne by the taxpayers and will be taken from the general fund and other sources like highways and education. Uh, the OBM report uh, showed the savings, um, well, not, it's not savings, the formula that will result in $40 million to be put towards rehabilitation to be spread across all 88 counties. That's not going to go far. Issue one has been opposed by every editorial board who's looked at this issue. Uh, just this week, one of their own pastors that they have running a commercial uh, in support of issue one decided that after looking into this further, this was not a good idea. And he has backed up on his support and he has asked the campaign to stop running that commercial. 
But most importantly, I oppose issue one because people will die if this passes. You destroy drug courts and uh, we save lives. I've got a graduation coming up this Thursday. I have 27 people graduating. We will have our 400th drug court graduate coming out. And those people had not gotten help in the criminal justice system. I guarantee you a good number of them would be dead today. So 63% of the people that we take in drug court uh, would be reclassified as misdemeanors, and we would not have jurisdiction over them. Uh, so that's why when I say people will die, they will die because they won't get access to treatment in drug court. Judge, you shared a lot in your opening statements there, your opening remarks, and um, I want to unpack that. I want to start off with uh, prison overcrowding, and I understand that maybe the numbers aren't as high, but issue one would help reduce the prison population by, it's projected, I, I think objectively, by as much as 15%. Why isn't that a good thing? Why isn't that a good thing? You know who's in prison? There's 49,512 people in prison. I want your listeners to go Google ODRC Institutional Census 2018. They'll see the numbers, take a look at pages six to eight of that report, and they'll tell you who's in prison. It's a big number, and it's a shame that there's that many people in prison, but the fact is there's a lot of people out there committing violent crime. The people in prison are there because they uh, are a danger to society. 7,328, 15% of our prison inmates are serving a life sentence. They're never going to get out. Another 30%, 15,033, are serving sent time for a first-degree felony. 24%, 11,686, are serving time for a second-degree felony. And almost 10,000, or 20% of the population, is serving time for a third-degree felony. Again, less than 11%. Uh, is are serving time for a fourth or fifth degree felony. So the numbers that we're being told are severely trumped up, you might say. Bashara, comment? So I do disagree. Um, the first point around uh, when I said 20%, it's about 20%. It's not one, like it won't be 20% every year, but it's it's going to hover around 20, a 20% reduction. You're still going to claim that after the OBM report? I am still going to claim that after the OBM report. Policy Matters Ohio is really confident in their analysis. And when we look at cost per person for someone who's incarcerated, it's around $73 a day. And the analysis that Policy Matters Ohio did was looking at uh, using a number between 30 and 40, taking into consideration that there are fixed costs. And just because you reduce prison population doesn't mean a facility is going to close. Um, but prison costs include more than just So where are the savings going to be from if the Providing services for health care, uh, food, um, clothing. There's a, lots of things that are happening in these prisons that inmates are taking advantage of. But that's not the formula you use for savings. Well, that's the formula we use for savings. I'm not sure what formula the Ohio Budget Office used for savings. And so we have two different analyses. They're coming to different conclusions, but we're confident in our analysis. Okay. So I'd like to move along here and talk about how this amendment is coming about as, or how this uh, initiative is coming about. And that is a constitutional amendment. Bashara, why should we not be concerned that this passage is made possible through a constitutional amendment? Uh, better put, why can't the legislators just, if this is a problem, why, why don't they just work it out? So they've had an opportunity to work it out. Um, there has been an opportunity to uh, take felony four and five drug possession offenses and reclassify them as misdemeanors. And it just hasn't passed through the General Assembly. 
Um, In 2017, there were over a thousand bills introduced, 10 percent of which either enhanced or created new criminal convictions. So the temperature of our state house is to create more ways for individuals to pick up a criminal conviction or be incarcerated. And that's, you know, what I believe is why our prison population has remained stable. So we believe that it's time to let voters decide how we should reconstruct our criminal justice system. We recognize that it's uncomfortable. It's going to create new and different work for us to do. Um, But it's the work that we should be considering. And we have not had success in this particular statehouse in reducing prison population. And our belief is that addiction is a public health issue and we should not be using incarceration as a tool to address it. So that's the upside of doing a constitutional amendment. You can get something done, whereas uh, otherwise you haven't been able to. Judge, what's the downside? Can't be changed. It just... It's set in concrete. There's always unintended consequences whenever you enact legislation. Uh, George Soros and Mark Zuckerberg are not coming back to Ohio to spend another $4 million on a ballot initiative to correct the uh, mistakes that are rampant in this proposal. Um, You know, the the proponents of issue one claimed that the General Assembly's done nothing regarding criminal justice reform, and that's why it has to be a constitutional amendment. And that's just another falsehood that they're putting out there. House Bill 86 was passed in 2011. It permitted first-time nonviolent offenders to be sent to treatment facilities instead of prison and created new opportunities for reduction of jail time for certain inmates. Senate Bill 337 in 2012 was the collateral sanctions reform law. Now, I think this is something that Ms. Addison has been very interested in her life, and she should be aware of it. I am because I helped to work on it. Right. So it passed. Uh, House Bill 56, ban the box law, bars public employers from including job application questions about the applicant's criminal background. That was passed in 2017. Uh, House Bill 483, uh, 2015, it passed in that General Assembly. It was the Criminal Justice Recodification Committee. It's uh, put together a committee to look at changes. House Bill 49, now this is the big one. This passed in 2017, and this uh, forbid judges from sending nonviolent fourth and fifth degree felons to prison, uh, again, unless they had a history of violence or sex offender history, uh, we could not send them to prison. Um, So if you carried a concealed weapon and uh, you picked up another case with a carrying concealed weapon, that's, that's a nonviolent offense. That guy can't go to prison under that bill. Senate Bill 33 in 2017 gave greater flexibility to courts to continue people in intervention lieu of conviction programs, even when they violate it. So we've got plenty of precedent to suggest the two parties are able to work together to pass meaningful legislation to deal with this very issue. Yeah, to say that the General Assembly can't be trusted to act is, is intellectually dishonest. Counter? So it's not that they haven't done anything. It's that they haven't done enough. And it still hasn't reduced our prison population. Our prison population has remained stable over the last decade. And so the goal behind issue one is to, A, make sure that we reduce prison population and decrease prison overcrowding. It won't solve the entire overcrowding problem, but it will certainly make a dent in that. But it's also to make sure that we have more resources being directed to drug treatment related programs, which we're confident in our analysis that there will be cost savings realized that will come back to our communities for that. You want resources to drug treatment programs, your your issue is going to destroy my drug and other drug courts in the country. It's like you have a highway that shepherds people to good health. 
and you're going to blow the bridge up while you hope that a newer, smaller bridge, less funded bridge will get built. That's what your proposal is doing. So So let's go back and unpack that just a little bit, Judge. Why specifically is this uh, piece of of this initiative going to impact your uh, drug court so adversely and blow it up? Again, 63% of the people that I have in drug court are there on fourth or fifth degree felony possession charges. I lose jurisdiction over all of those cases of issue one passes. They become misdemeanors. So municipal courts get those cases. Community courts do not have one, the funding for drug courts or the infrastructure of drug courts that common police courts have built up over the last 20 years in this state. Uh, and to assume that the $40 million that might be provided by issue one is going to be enough to rebuild the infrastructure is just polyanic. What's going to happen while you destroy the ability of people getting into common police court with the fairy tale hope that muni courts will open drug courts is that people are not going to get treatment and people will die. I don't want to see that happen. I think that's irresponsible. So we're not the first state to um, reclassify felony four and five drug possession offenses as misdemeanors. And those states have found that they did increase the use of drug courts, that That, their drug courts remain stable. That is not true. California's drug courts have dropped. Oklahoma's drug courts have dropped. Uh, That statement is a patent falsehood. In 2018, Oklahoma's 58 drug courts remained full. So that's this year. They had a full, full slate of individuals going through their drug courts. That wasn't a constitutional amendment either. It wasn't a constitutional amendment, but they did have that approach and the sky didn't fall. So the second thing is we don't deny that drug courts can be effective. We do question whether drug courts are accessible to everyone, particularly across racial lines. And there's a belief um, and there's data to back that up, that there are racial disparities in who has access to drug court. So drug courts could be effective for some people, but not everyone has access to those. And yes, there might be a greater need for municipal drug courts. Municipal drug courts exist, and they would be eligible to compete for the dollars that would be reallocated to our communities from the cost savings. You want to blow up drug courts and common police court because you claim they're not diverse enough? Is that what you're saying? I, I mean, you said that you had 1,100 people going through in a period of 10 years, and we know that way more people than that have had drug-related offenses. So I'm curious, what is the diversity of, of so your because court? drug court's not working enough, that we don't take enough people, you want to blow it up. You're, you're going to be blowing up something that works. It works some, for who? It works for the people who go through it. Yes, and I'm just wondering who those people are and if there's equitable access to that. Those people who get felonies in Cuyahoga County are the people who get into drug court. You're saying I have something to do with the racial makeup of your court. You're wrong. They get referred from the prosecutor's office. They get referred from defense attorneys. They get referred from other judges. And to your point, you're not the only actor in this criminal justice system. The fundamental goal behind issue one and the fact that we were able to collect 700,000 signatures from across the state, nearly 400,000 of those signatures were valid, collected from all the counties. It, that didn't happen because people think that what's happening in our criminal justice system is right or fair. It's time for a fundamental change. Well, let's, and let's issue one will, will create a fundamental change. It's so wildly popular. Your, your act is called what? The Neighborhood Safety and Rehabilitation Act? Correct. Who's going to vote for that or vote against that? I mean, you might as well just put Neighborhood Safety, Drug Treatment, and Lottery Guaranteed Winning Ticket Act. I mean, I'm surprised you only got the signatures you got with the $4.5 million that you spent getting those signatures. 
I want to know, you're getting paid for this effort, right? I'm not. Um, I, there is funding support for me giving my time to you're, you. You're getting paid. I'm not. The pastor who backed up was getting paid $4,000 a month, right? You also have this commercial with a father in Summit County who claims that his son couldn't get drug treatment and got punishment instead. Turns out Mr. Uh, he, got, uh, he graduated from Judge Teodoso's drug court, Richard Garrett Hughes. He graduated from drug court. Everything that your campaign does is based on profit for the people running it or uh, falsehoods. I don't think anybody's profiting from this. And there was another um, assertion that you made around these outside supporters. Um, so we did get support from from other from other organizations. The notable this, one is Mark Zuckerberg and his wife. Oh, they formed this Christian Coalition of America. But right? you, want, you want to tell us about the Christian Coalition of America and the funding that Mr. Soros or Mr. Zuckerberg provided them, this front group that was paying the pastor? So let's talk about how Issue 1 was formed. So Issue 1 was developed, it, the thinking behind Issue 1 started about three years ago between some organizations that were Ohio-based, the Ohio Justice and Policy Center, the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, and the Ohio, Tra- Ohio Transformation Fund, which is an intermediary for funders who are interested in taking on uh, systemic change. And the issue that they chose to work on was criminal justice reform for all of the reasons that for all the things that the campaign is trying to address. So those organizations did some polling to figure out what would voters vote for. Um, And these were the four things that came through as what voters would be interested in. And from there, we did seek out funding, but it didn't happen the other way around. It wasn't like Facebook and George Soros came into Ohio and say, let's do this. No, we came up with this in-house and then we sought support just like any other campaign seeks support because guess what? I've never met a campaign that was funded on no money. Most campaigns have money flowing in. And I'd be interested in um, all the different campaigns across the state, what outside money is coming in to make those things happen. This work isn't free. But it's if, not if like that, these if are— that's true. But none of if these organizations— can I, can I finish? You're, you're interrupting me. None are of you these, done? I, I wasn't done. Because— So if, none of these organizations— are profiting from this. They are dedicating their time, they're dedicating their resources because this is what they believe in. Okay, judge, please. Okay, so if the California people just provided the money, why does the language call for the exception of the 25% credit to rape, murder, and child molestation? Child molestation is a crime in California. It's not a crime in Ohio. Why would you include that language if you people in Ohio were the one behind this? Let's be truthful. So the Alliance for Safety and Justice also participated in helping to craft this, and they have worked on other initiatives across the country. But the individual who is working on that also happens to be Ohio-based. And those that would be eligible for the earned time credit are already eligible for the earned time credit under our current statute, which is you can earn up to 8% off your sentence. Over 40 states have earned time credit. This actually just puts us in line with other states. And we're not, this won't make us the most um, like liberal state out there. There are far more liberal approaches to um, allowing individuals to be released early. 90% of individuals who are incarcerated are coming home. And our belief is that those who are incarcerated should be participating in evidence-based programming because we know that if they are and we're incentivizing them to do so, 
then they're going to come back in a better position to take advantage of a second chance. I'd like to kind of explore the felony drug possession, possession as well as use crimes involving fentanyl. Uh, You could possess a little less than 20 grams of fentanyl, which is enough to kill maybe 50,000 people. And now that would be classified as a misdemeanor if this new initiative is passed. So that would appear to be a very, very bad thing and something that would open up the doors, the floodgates, if you will, for drug dealers to kind of game the system because they're just going to go slap on the wrist. Bishara, comment? So this is for drug possession only. Um, I have heard the critique that 19 grams of uh, fentanyl could theoretically be considered a misdemeanor. But in practice, anyone who has 19 grams of fentanyl is being regu- is charged regularly as a federal crime and it's trafficking. And so those individuals are not eligible under issue one. And they often also have companion charges, which makes them ineligible for for um, this reclassification to a misdemeanor. So I'm curious, for those who have put this out there, how many cases have they actually tried with someone who has 19 grams of fentanyl and it's only been considered a misdemeanor because 19 grams, is, it's not just about how what someone has, it's also about their intent. And they have companion charges that allow them to be charged with higher felonies. And then the federal government is cracking down on the trafficking of fentanyl. And that amount, what it's happening is it's coming through like the mail and in a powder form. And that is those organizations that are looking and going through what's coming through the mail is then being they're notifying the federal government and it's charged as trafficking. So I'm curious, what is the instance where someone with 19 grams is actually not being charged with with a felony with trafficking? I, I want to know what the scale of that problem is. We don't have to argue this point, uh, whether they're going to get charged with trafficking. My point is uh, this was inartful at best drafting um, and dangerous drafting. Uh, there is no way that 19 gram possession of fentanyl, which is, again, enough to kill you know, a busload of kids and all of the first responders responding to them, or maybe 10,000 people, as some have said, if you put it into two grams. Uh, it should never be a misdemeanor. Possession of 49 unit doses of heroin should never be a misdemeanor. Possession of 49 unit doses of LSD should never be a misdemeanor. You went too far in drafting this. Uh, it's been called out, and now you want to claim, well, we could just overcharge them with trafficking when the evidence may not support it. To prove trafficking, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that there was an intent to sell, use, distribute, ship, and jurors hold prosecutors to the reasonable doubt standard. Uh, charging someone, you're asking the, the justice system then to overcharge, basically, is what you're doing by putting this uh, uh, out there that 19 grams of fentanyl uh, should just be charged with trafficking. And, um, you know, you asked, you said that they should be shifted to federal court. Well, why, why should we shift the resource? And there's no guarantee that uh, the feds are going to charge every drug uh, trafficker with trafficking who possessed 19 grams of fentanyl. So the point is, it is in practice, that amount of fentanyl is being reg- regularly charged as a, as a trafficking related offense is the point. Um, and so this. Uh, this fear tactic that is being used that, you know, it could kill a busload of children. That's not actually, 
but it's not actually happening in practice. And so those those tactics and throwing that out there, it's just creating fear about something that isn't exactly a problem. Do you know how many people have died in the state of fentanyl? Well, I do know that there were 80,000 individuals who were not in the workforce in 2015 because of opiate drugs. It's just the campaign belief that those and who you are think using... think issue one is going to put them in the workforce? You think they're just going to line up for treatment on their own? People don't go to treatment on their own. I think people do want treatment. I think people do want better access. Who are their parents or the person suffering from dependency? I think Everybody. you're really naive and haven't worked in this field to think that Rosary Hall has a line out the door. So I have relatives, including my own brother, who battles addiction. So this is personal for me. I think I do know a little bit about this experience. Yeah, I'm sorry about your brother, but um, I've been doing the drug court for 10 years, and I know how people work who are in the grips of dependency. And it's terribly naive and dangerous to think that they're going to go on their own. If they went on their own, we wouldn't need police and drug dogs and everything else. It would just take care of itself. I want to circle back for just a minute to the amount of money that would be uh, diverted back into treatment to help with treatment here. If this were to pass, then by some estimates, it's projected that $136 million per year will go back to communities into treatment to help with that. Um, why, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, Judge, I'll let you start on this one. Why is that number uh, overinflated and how far is that overestimated? Well, that's policy matters number. That's uh, 132 million. Now, 70% of that will go to treatment under issue one, not the 100%. Um, and that 70% is going to be less than the annual school budget of my local school district, Cleveland Heights University Heights. Um, the uh, Office of Budget Management uh, thought the figure was more accurately put at $40 million. Um, whether it's $40 million or $100 million or $132 million, you're going to spread it in a grant program across the state of Ohio. It's not going to go very far. It's going to be a half a million bucks a county or a million bucks a county, and it's going to be grant-based. So you're going to have, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be up to the Ohio um, OMAS, Ohio Mental Health uh, and Addiction uh, Service Agencies, who's going to be making the call as to who gets the grants and who doesn't get the grants. And, you know, every mom and pop, uh, rehab shop in the in the state's going to want to get this grant, and um, it's not going to go to the people who are, or have programs established right now necessarily. Uh, it's just it, it's it's like spreading having to spread an ounce of peanut butter on f fourteen loaves of bread. It's not going to go that far. So we believe that it's a start. And it's our projection is that it will be 136 million a year. So it's not something that will just happen once because we believe that there will be 10,000 fewer people incarcerated each year. So it's not like this is just for one year only. It would be a one time grant. This would be year over year, 10,000 fewer people incarcerated. I want to drill down just a little bit on on this. The people that are convicted of uh, of these crimes under this new provision. Can I just point out, there's only 2,600 people in prison now for drug possession of all felony levels. So the 10,000 number is not going to happen. So the 10,000 number includes not just those who 
have the drug possession-related offenses that are currently incarcerated. That's right. It's the violent it, people who get out early under their 25% not, not reduction. just the violent people. It's about those who are participating in programming where up to 25, they can earn up to 25% off their sentence. Individuals that will all will be released anyway. And that's actually the, where the greatest share of savings will be. And that's about 4,800 people we expect would be eligible for this um, early release by participating in the programming. You guys and drafted then this, and when somebody breaks somebody else's bone and a judge hands down an appropriate sentence, you guys think it's fair to cut their sentence by 25%? Up or, to 25%. By up to 25%. And first of all, you don't even have to complete rehabilitative programming if they get into it. It's just participation. That's how it's worded. Uh, and most of the people are just going to be working in the prison kitchen and getting a half day off their sentence for every day they work in the kitchen. That's how it's going to work. And you're going to let violent people out. You're going to have, the state's going to have to defend equal protection lawsuits from prisoners who might not get to work in the prison kitchen um, because somebody else gets to work in the prison kitchen. This is a terrible, terrible idea to put in the Constitution. So I, our, our belief is that there should be more evidence-based programming in our facilities. And so if inmates don't have a chance to participate, that's a problem we should be solving for regardless of issue one passes or not. So I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to discuss uh, what it is that we haven't covered in, uh, in this podcast so far and what you'd like to leave our listeners with. And Judge, I'll leave that with you. Okay, thank you. We all believe in rehabilitation over incarceration, but uh, I think if your listeners look at who's in prison, the appropriate people are in prison. You want to lower the 49,000 number, which is a terribly too high number, you have to start before people commit crime. You have to get them education. You have to get the people who grow up in bad environments trauma therapy so they don't become violent from the violence they learned growing up. That's how you reduce the prison population. You don't just decide to let people out early. What's next? If this doesn't lower the prison population enough, are we just going to lay off police? And just pretend violent crime doesn't exist because that's where this proposition goes in its natural progression. Um, issue one is, again, a bad idea. Every newspaper opposes this. Uh, the Common Pleas Dr- Judges Association opposes this. The Municipal Court Judges oppose this. Prosecutors Association opposes this. Our local Adams Board, the people that are in charge of mental health and drug dependency efforts in this county opposes this. The Academy of Medicine of Cleveland and Northern Ohio, they oppose this. Uh, Issue one has support from Pollyannic naivetes who just don't like the fact that we have a big prison number, but are not offering a real solution that guarantees rehabilitation to those who need it while keeping society safe. Michelle? Thank you. Um, So we know that in states that have done similar reforms, the sky has not fallen. They have seen a reduction in prison population and the crime rates have not gone up. The goal behind issue one is to make sure that we do reduce incarceration and that we treat addiction as a public health issue. And that is what we're trying to accomplish through issue one. We also know that there's a disproportionate share of those incarcerated who are people of color. And that has a lot to do with lots of factors within our criminal justice system. The retroactive nature 
of being able to reclassify felony four or five drug possession offense for those who've already completed their sentence allows for those to be able to get a second chance and helps remove barriers to employment. And we believe the collective nature of the different elements of issue one is going to have a positive impact on our communities, particularly communities of color. And so I am hoping that people support issue one. Okay. Any last word, final word? Thanks for giving us this time together, Greg. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate having you here. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. I wanted to round out our conversation with input from a treatment provider who stands to gain additional funding should Issue 1 pass. So I asked Tom Stuber, CEO of the Lakata Wellness and Recovery Way, for his perspective on Issue 1. Well, and I've been in the field 39 years, and so I've pretty much seen uh, a number of different efforts to get a number of things done. But in terms of Issue 1, some of the complications associated with that are that this bill applies to many more than just um, people with drug offenses. It actually addresses all offenses uh, except for rape, murder, and child molestation. So any individual, regardless of their crime, and regardless of whether or not they were alcohol or drug related, will be um, beneficiaries under this um, sentencing reform bill that comes out. You know, I think it's been proposed to the public as really just drug addressing the opioid epidemic. And so, but it's much broader than that, isn't it? It is absolutely much broader. There, Even those that are currently in prison, uh, they can all experience a 25% reduction in their uh, current sentences. And again, That can include people that are there because of assault, voluntary manslaughter, drug dealing, and attempted murder or attempted rape. Wow. That's pretty far-reaching. Well, and let me talk a little bit about the impact on on treatment. I think in Ohio, um, we've had a number of uh, bills that have focused in on sentencing reform over the last several years. We've got the TCAPs, which are the Targeted Communities uh, Alternative to Prison and that the uh, um, and and so a lot has been done to try to get individuals into treatment. We know that the courts right now have become and the probation departments too. Let me throw that in. Have become wonderful partners uh, to the treatment teams in our communities. Most individuals get into treatment because they've crossed the line, they've been out of control, and somebody else has taken control. And in many cases, that is the courts. And they've, they've required individuals to get into treatment. And that treatment is hard. And I don't think most people understand that. When I've engaged in behaviors that have violated my values, I've created some significant threats to my ego functioning and my self-esteem. And when I have to begin looking at those issues, Many people who are in treatment voluntarily say, I've had enough. It's getting too hard, and they step away. And unfortunately, without the adequate skills to continue their recovery, 
they soon find themselves back in uh, a use pattern or into their addiction. If the courts are standing over and saying, no, you've got to complete this, many of them do. In fact, research has indicated that um, people that are mandated into treatment tend to do better than those that voluntarily admit themselves to treatment. And so the courts have played a critical role in, one, helping people get into treatment earlier and helping them stay motivated to complete that treatment. And so we've really been blessed with uh, a wonderful court system and probation system in, in Ohio. The second thing to keep in mind is that some of the other consequences of this are that it basically will legalize the use of all drugs for both adults and adolescents, meaning that if they're caught with less than 20 grams of any drug, the worst that can happen is they can be sentenced to probation. That's an interesting point. One of the lesser-known unintended consequences, I think, of passage of Issue 1 is effectively decriminalizing possession of less than 20 grams of any drug, including fentanyl. And if they violate that probation such as not going to treatment or not doing anything, the only consequence is their probation gets extended. There is no true consequence or true motivator to get them to comply with, with treatment. So, again, that includes drugs like fentanyl and cocaine and methamphetamine. That's incredibly dangerous. I, I understand that. You know, if, if it was 19 grams, then it's a misdemeanor, yet they would be able to uh, – that that could kill up to 10,000 people, say. Is that right? Uh, actually, 100,000 people. Oh, my. 19 grams of fentanyl is enough to kill, um, to kill a community. Let me put it that way. And yet, you know, what's going to happen, and I think that people that deal drugs – are anxious to see this go through because if I just limit what I'm carrying to 19 grams and I get stopped, I just say, well, that was for my personal use. And under this definition, that would, that would fit. And so they don't get charged with dealing. You're in the treatment industry. It would seem as though this would be good for you. It is estimated that somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $136 million would be saved per year uh, by not having to incarcerate 10,000 people, and that money would be funneled back into recovery uh, and well, into organizations such as yours. Where do, you, where do you stand on this issue? Well, again, Greg, that is using simple math, and in fact, that's not the true amount that would be saved. The Ohio Department of Office of Budget and Management has just put out an analysis of the true cost savings of this bill. And in the simplest form, the cost savings would be about $24 million a year. And again, that's, again, very simple math again. And $24 million a year will generate um, about $413,000 per county. You know, we're in a state with 88 counties. That's enough to treat 40 people. I think they're projecting that more people will be coming out of prison or not directed to prison than 40. But yet we will be handcuffed as treatment providers to try to uh, treat all people coming out with only enough that would increase our uh, capacity by 40 individuals. Now, that's the simple math. 
if you go even further into this and take a look at, you know, most economists will tell you that there are fixed costs and there are variable costs. The state institutions, if they continue to remain open, will still have their fixed costs. So the only thing we will save will be the variable cost of those individuals going through treatment. And when you ratchet down those numbers, the true savings is probably going to be about uh, $1.2 million a year for each of the first three years, and then possibly four point eight in 2023. Well, $1.2 million distributed among 88 counties will basically mean that each county will be able to treat, um, at the lowest level of care, maybe 20 additional individuals. The math isn't working. So, weighing all of the pros and cons of this, all in all, you're against this. But, in essence, the concept behind it is very solid. So, going forward, what would you recommend, Tom? Well, going forward, I think it's been a wake-up call to our legislature. Our legislature has done some good things over the last four years in terms of some sentencing reform, as I had shared before. But it's not enough. There needs to be more. There needs to be uh, more focused attention to those that truly do have a drug problem, starting their treatment um, and moving them to treatment rather than incarceration. Um, and again, I think the, the state has done that. Um, right now, I think the, the Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections has identified that maybe there are um, between 25 and 35,000 individual, or I'm sorry, between 25 and 3,500 individuals currently incarcerated in a state that incarcerates 55,000 individuals that are affected or are there because of drug possession. Oh, that's much lower than what we've been led to believe, isn't it? Yes, yes. But again, they're, they're talking about releasing 10,000, but that's because it's more than just drug possession that people are being uh, released for. Yeah. Um, so again, the Department of Rehabilitation and Correction has identified, again, between 2,500 and 3,500 individuals that are there because of possession. We need to continue to deliver treatment. We know that the majority of individuals that are incarcerated are there because of an addiction problem. Usually individuals are incarcerated because they've crossed some other line. They've committed some other crime. And we do believe that there is a responsibility to um, be held accountable for the actions we do. But that doesn't mean that they should not be receiving treatment so that they don't engage in those behaviors again in the future. We should begin, we should be intensifying treatment um, at the jail and prison level. We need to make sure that there is the opportunity to move people into uh, rehabilitation upon release from from jail or prison. We need to make sure that that capacity is available and that I think that there is currently a bill uh, under design or development that is, uh, um, and I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know the representatives that are putting it together, but I do believe that there's a bill that will address some of the specific goals of issue one without the consequences. And I think we should let the legislature complete that and uh, 
hold them accountable to a timeline. Well, Tom Stuber, please give us your final word on issue one. My final word on issue one is that, you know, although most most voters are going to uh, take a look at this and say, of course, people need treatment. And I strongly believe that they do and they deserve treatment and they deserve the ability to get into a life of recovery. We've got to do it with a uh, not a constitutional amendment, but we need to do it with legislation that's going to make sense and not have all these additional consequences tied to it. So I'm a no on issue one. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Greg. So what have we learned about issue one? If Issue 1 passes, it'll address a very real problem of an overcrowded Ohio prison population, and in the process, it would divert funds to recovery that would have been used to keep people locked up. If Issue 1 passes, it'll free the system of people charged with low-level drug offenses. The estimated population that would be affected, twenty-five to 3,500, and not the 10,000 that's been widely reported. Also, If Issue 1 passes, the savings is estimated to be enough to provide treatment for 20 more people in each of Ohio's 88 counties. If Issue 1 passes, more than half of the people who get help today through Ohio's 167 drug courts will no longer have that opportunity. And finally, if Issue 1 passes, someone busted with 19 grams of fentanyl enough to kill an entire community, could be charged with misdemeanor drug possession. Joining us today to help us unpack Issue 1 were Judge David Mattia, the common pleas judge from Cleveland, Ohio, who helped create Cuyahoga County's first drug court program in 2008. Also joining us was Bashara Addison, the senior manager of policy and strategic initiatives for Towards Employment. And finally, Tom Stuber, the CEO of the Lakata Wellness and Recovery Way. One last note to add to this podcast. The founder of an Akron 501c3 nonprofit posted videos against Issue 1 on his personal Facebook page early this month. On October 14th, Facebook notified him that due to technical issues, all of his Issue 1 videos were erased. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.